Well, I'm so thankful for my parents. They have been a, uh, an ongoing example to me throughout my life. Uh, faithful, godly people. And while they were visiting this last week, um, we got to talking about uh, revival stories, stories of old. They were sharing uh, stories that they, they knew and, and ones that really caused their eyes to light up and their, their old bodies and souls to really just begin to rejoice. And as we were talking, I mean, I, I, I was intrigued and I went and grabbed a book of mine that records some of these stories uh, of, of the revivals of old. And as I read, I was struck by a common theme. I was struck by the fact that the men and women who were, who were behind some of these revivals were such ordinary people, simply hungry for God. Ordinary people, hungry for God. Like Jeremiah Lamphere, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but a Wall Street businessman in the, in the uh, 1850s, whose little prayer meeting with fellow businessmen in New York turned into a gathering of nearly 10,000 faithful men and women praying on a daily basis, asking God to pour out his spirit to bring revival on the nation. And that, that sparked that same sort of spirit of prayer in not just New York, but in many cities, and, and also led to a nationwide revival that had stunning results. So in, in, in his book, A God-Sized Vision, Colin Hansen records the events that followed in those years of revival. I just want to read a few quotes from that book. In, quote, in Boston, police officers, jaded by violence and strife, were shocked to see an outbreak of joy and goodwill among the uneducated and poor, black and white together. Similarly, uh, in Philadelphia, Colin, uh, Colin writes that... Uh, Prayer meetings were reaching 3,000 attendees daily, and quote, firefighters notorious for brawling with one another were opening their halls to evangelists to come and preach, end quote. Denominations that didn't often get along, they were collaborating and participating in the revival, even sharing pulpits to demonstrate the core truths that they were united around. Conversion, Conversion stories were pouring in from city after city. And in each city, town halls, public squares, churches, they were flooded with people. The Chicago Daily Press reported, quote, the prominent topic of thought and conversation in our streets, in our places of business, and in our homes is the subject of the religious awakening. It is upon the lips of Christians and of unbelievers, end quote. So college campuses, likewise, were erupting with, a, uh, with revival and leading to the unlikely conversions of intellectuals like Lottie Moon, who is, uh, after whom the Southern Baptist Missionary Offering is named. And Moon, this, this young woman, would go on to lead hundreds to the Lord as a missionary in China, where she would spend the rest of her life. Her story has inspired so many women to, towards global missions This revival in 1857 and 1858, it brought reports from around the globe of its its immediate effects on society. One such report is, is this one, quote, the penitent owners of gambling saloons made them available for daily prayer meetings. Southern grocery keepers rolled out their barrels. They poured out their contents on the ground and, and, quote, abandoned the traffic of alcohol. 
The chief of police in Atlanta, Georgia, maintained that the revival had so reduced the rate of crime that he could dispense with half his force. In the fourth ward of New York City, many haunts of sin and shame were shut up and hundreds of prostitutes allegedly were rescued. These people and these stories are examples to us that God is still in the business. 2,000 years after Pentecost, he's still in the business of giving his spirit to hungry people and using them to do the very things that he did while he walked on the earth. What set people like Lamphere and Moon apart? How are we going to see revival like we just read about in our city, in our nation, in our time? We desperately need it, don't we? How are we going to get there? I believe the answer is found in God's word from the page, from even from what we just read, and that is that we must seek the God who gives his spirit for a powerful and effective mission. That's my main point today. We must seek the God who gives his spirit for powerful and effective mission. I'm going to show you a pattern in Acts of men and women seeking God and him giving power. So I'm going to first show you that Jesus promised power for mission. Secondly, we're going to see the disciples praying for that power. And third, we're going to see that Jesus gave the Spirit for power. So before we jump into our text, I I just want to give you a little context in the book of Acts. Acts is uh, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. So we've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke. It's written by the same man, Paul's companion, the Apostle Paul's companion, and actually his medical doctor. And so this, this man, Luke, in his Gospel, focused... In, in, in the gospel on what the kingdom of God is like. He focused on Jesus' kingdom and what it was like. But in the Acts of the Apostles, or as some have named it, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, he shows us how Jesus' kingdom was advancing after Jesus ascended. So, right at the beginning of the book, we get in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, and Luke tells us that The kingdom of God is Jesus' primary teaching topic during those 40 days from the time that he was resurrected to the time of his ascension. He was talking, it says in verse 1 3, or chapter 1, verse 3, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. So it makes sense why this topic came up with the disciples. We see in verse 6, you can just have your Bible open there and just look when I when I point you to a scripture, I'd love for you to look and see it yourself. But in verse 6, we see the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom of God is on their hearts. And that seems like a great question, doesn't it? They had seen Jesus' miracles. They had seen his death. They had seen him buried. They had seen, seen him raised and even ascended. So it seems that now is the time for him to take his throne at Jerusalem, right? Well, not quite, Jesus says. There was still another step in God's plan of redemption that the disciples didn't understand. And verses 4 and 5 begin to unfold for us. Look at Jesus' words, verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus was king Jesus even promised that he would one day reign on his throne, a throne in Jerusalem even, but the next step was for the disciples to 
Wait. Wait. Wait for what? It's time, right? Well, Jesus said, you, you need to wait for the promise of the Father. That is the Holy Spirit. You see, the Father had made a promise through the prophets. In the Old Testament, we, read, we can find many such promises that, that were written by the prophets, which, which Jesus here describes as a baptism. And it's a baptism not of water like John's, but a Holy Spirit baptism. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the disciples had already been dunked. <clears throat> you know, they'd already been dunked in water. They'd already symbolized their submission to God, their repentance from sin, their desire to follow Jesus wherever he was telling them to go. But, but they still hadn't received the promised baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling presence of God. So they needed to be dunked again as it were, in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit of God. So where does the Father promise a spirit baptism in the Scripture? Well, lots of places, but most explicitly in Joel chapter 2. And I'm just going to have you turn a couple uh, over to chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, where Peter paraphrases those words from Joel. It says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So why do the disciples need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Joel says that they'll be baptized in order that they may prophesy. Now prophecy... Prophesying is is often uh, thought of as a future-telling sort of action. But most commonly in Scripture, it's it's actually used to refer to those who are speaking or writing a divinely inspired message. In other words, the Father promised to give the Holy Spirit so that, right here, he's saying in Joel 2, the promise is, is for all people, men, women, young, old, sons, daughters, even you and me, all people, so that they would be empowered to speak, to prophesy a divine message. They would speak a divine message, namely the message that God has come to save the world in and through Jesus and His kingdom. This is the gospel that I preach. This is the gospel that we preach, Christians, to the world and the one message by which men are saved. And this is what was promised long ago that we would be empowered to do just that. So why did the disciples need it? Why did they need this baptism? They needed it so that they could prophesy. All flesh would receive the Spirit of God so that not just prophets and priests, not just pastors and Christian leaders, but that you and me could bear this message with power as witnesses of this good news of Jesus. So when the disciples asked about the time of the kingdom, Jesus was teaching them this truth that the Spirit has to come first so they could be witnesses. It was in this way that the kingdom of God would would advance, through the testimony of the disciples. Look at verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and read that out loud with me if you will, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea 
in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Simply put, Jesus is saying, hey, I don't want you to worry about when my kingdom is coming. This is, this is fixed by the Father. I want you to focus on your mission as witnesses to the end of the earth. I don't want you to focus on when God will destroy Israel's enemies. I don't want you to focus on anything but witnessing this message of the kingdom to the world. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, even as Jesus was uniquely empowered by the Spirit throughout his ministry, Jesus was going to give the disciples that same power for theirs. Just as Jesus was empowered, he was going to empower them for their ministry to witness his kingdom. So Jesus didn't send them out immediately, but he told them to wait. Even though they knew their mission, go and make disciples. He'd already commissioned them, but he says, wait. Wait until you receive that promise. More than any strategy that they needed, more more than any organization, they needed the power that God promised to them if they were going to accomplish this mission. Amen? So in verses 12 and following, we're told that after Jesus ascended, that the disciples obeyed. They did what Jesus said, and they went to Jerusalem and waited. But their waiting was not passive. Let's see what they were doing. This is the second point. Jesus' disciples prayed for power. Look at verse 14 with me. Would you all read this out loud with me? Again, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Sorry, I guess I didn't give you the reference. (laughs) You guys are like, we're trying. Notice two characteristics of this prayer meeting. One, we're told that they prayed with one accord. One accord. They had united hearts in this prayer. They were all after the same thing. Two, they were devoting themselves. We're told they were devoting themselves to prayer. In other words, this was not a one-time prayer where they came together like a lot of our prayer meetings. We, we throw a prayer meeting and we show up and we're, we're like, okay, I'll give an hour. We get out and we're like, that was hard. No, these guys were devoted. They would come daily all the way up until the Spirit was poured out. They devoted themselves consistently to prayer, fervently. This was an active waiting They came together and prayed with fervency and expectancy. And though we don't know exactly what they're praying, I think it's pretty safe to say that they were praying that God would fulfill His promise to pour out His Spirit on them. Now we're told about 10 days later, when the day of Pentecost arrived, that, quote, while they were all together in one place, presumably praying, The Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind and filled the house where they were sitting. Wow! What an answer to prayer. Can you imagine if our prayer meetings were met with that kind of manifestation of God? I think we'd pray a little more often. (laughs) Church, there's a lot of great great things that I can unpack in this this chapter, but I want to say, emphasize one thing here. Friends, united prayer is the vehicle to God's power being poured out on us. United prayer is the vehicle to great moves of the Spirit in the earth. This is the same in 
scripture and it is the same throughout history. You read reports, you read stories about revivals and you will find that there were people praying zealously in one accord consistently for God to move. When God's people come together in this way, expecting God to work through their faith-filled prayers, he just does what he says he'll do. He will work. He answered prayers. He answers prayers when we come together in this way. So you might ask, what is it about prayer that moves him? Why, why do we have to do that? Why doesn't he just, you know, you know, some people say, like, why doesn't he just show up in the clouds? But it's like, our ch- the church is here. We're gathered together. Why doesn't he just want to dump his spirit on us and, and cause us to be effective? Well, friends, he, he wants from us prayer he wants from us a, a posture of dependence on him. He doesn't want us to, to say, all right, God, we got the spirit. We're good with, we're good with you. Or, or, all right, God, we got our mission. We're, we're good. We're going to go do it. And, and that's the end of relationship with God. No, God wants us to depend on him. He wants us to have a posture of dependence from beginning to end. And so when we pray, we are admitting that we need him. It is the very act of prayer is an admission of our dependence on God. And our dependence on God moves his heart. We see it all over scripture. When we depend on him, God is moved. So where God finds a people who acknowledge in prayer that they are little help to anyone without God, that the task is too great, that that our abilities are too small, where he finds a people admitting these things, that is where God shows up to work. You see, prayer slowly humbles us. It slowly but surely helps us become less and God become more in our minds and hearts. It invites God to reign. And where God reigns in a person's life, there we can become conduits of his power. Where God reigns, let me say that again, where God reigns, we can then become conduits. That was not a let me say it, Let me say what's here. When God reigns in a person's life, they become conduits through which his power can move. We have to get off the throne so God can get on it and begin to move through us. Amen. Let me ask, what is, the, what is it about united prayer that moves God's heart? I think it's similar. I think that when we come together with united hearts, we take the attention off of any leader. We take the attention off of our numbers. We take the attention off of any gifting or any other thing. And we collectively say together, God, we need you. We're without power unless you come. Unless you work. It doesn't matter if we fill these pews. It doesn't matter how close-knit we are. But if God is not with us, empowering us, our our mission will be ineffective. Amen? Amen? I'll say that again. When God reigns in a church, that church can become a conduit through which God's power will move. When we draw near to God in dependence, He is able to draw near to us and move in power through us. And this is exactly what we see unfold in Acts chapter 2. Let's see this in the final point. Jesus gave the Spirit for power. Would you look at verse 4 of chapter 2? It says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the wind rushes in, and it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
This was a holy moment that no one could, <laughs> no one could explain away. There was something powerful happening in that moment. Praise God for the gift of the Holy Spirit, amen? Thank you, Father, for giving us the Holy Spirit. I love that verse. That, what Ross said earlier, this is the birth of the church that we're talking about. When God came to dwell in his people by his Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time, I don't have time to get into all the details. There's so much richness in this incredible chapter. But I just want to point out a couple things, a few things for us this evening. Number one, the Spirit came on all of them who were there praying. Friends, God is no respecter of wealth, of age, of gender, of skill. He he pours out his spirit on anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. And what could be greater? What could be a greater emphasis of your value to God than that he would generously give himself completely intimately to you and me, ordinary sinners? What could be a greater testimony of the way that he thinks about us, the way that he cares for us, the way that he loves us, and that he would give himself in that sort of way? We're talking, we're talking about God completely given to you and me, that we become the, the dwelling place of God. Two, we see that everyone who received the Spirit began to speak in other tongues, quote, as the Spirit gave them utterance. There are a lot of places in Scripture, uh, or I should say there, there are a lot more, there's a lot more in Scripture about speaking in tongues. I wish there was a lot of places in Scripture. There's actually not that much. But there is more about speaking in tongues. You can look to 1 Corinthians 14 if you're really curious about what that gift is. But in this case, I want to point out that Each one was speaking intelligibly in languages that were not their own. As they declared the mighty works of God. They were speaking in languages not their own. They hadn't gone to school for it. They just all of a sudden, because the Spirit came near, were speaking in another language. And other people were saying, they're speaking in my language and these are... Jews, like they're they're speaking about God in my language. What is happening? What's happening here is that these people were empowered beyond their own ability to be a witness. Just like the scripture said, just as Jesus promised. A third observation, the disciples were were empowered by the Spirit for bold witness. Notice who is preaching here in Acts chapter 2. Who is it? Who is it? Peter. Yeah, Peter. The one who had denied him just a few weeks earlier three times. And he's standing there with all, of his, all the other disciples who had deserted him at that moment, at that hour, because they were scared of the people. Now they're standing before the very people who crucified their Lord, and they're boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. There's a noticeable difference in humans when the Spirit of God is present. There is a noticeable difference. We are no longer limited as we minister by our personalities, by our weaknesses, even by our particular giftings. This is why there's no excuse for us to say evangelism is not my gift. God has called all of us to be light, all of us to be salt. Yes, some people have specific gifts to evangelize, but friends, we're all called to the purpose of being witness for Jesus. Jesus. 
Amen? Finally, we're told that their preaching brought about conviction and many conversions. Verse 37 tells us that when the audience heard this, they were, quote, cut to the heart, saying, what shall we do? What's next? We're told that 3,000 souls received Christ in baptism and were added to the church that day. That's a revival. (laughs) That's, That's an amazing work of God. The promise had been fulfilled. Amen, little Gigi. Woo, it's good stuff. The promise had been fulfilled that Jesus preached that they would be empowered for witness. They were given power for witness to the nations. And the Holy Spirit was that power. The Holy Spirit was that power. Perhaps you are hungry to see this type of revival in our city. I heard Matt Callahan talking about the the atrocities in North Minneapolis right now. My wife and I hear gunshots almost nightly as we go to bed in in Phillips' neighborhood. I want to see revival for our city for the sake of these people who are losing their lives pointlessly. Maybe you're asking that. You know, the the question is similar to the disciples. They were hungry for Jesus' kingdom to reign. They're like, get rid of the enemies. Let's, Jesus, tell the world that you're the Messiah. You just rose from the dead. Tell them. And he's like, wait. I'm going to give you power and you're going to be my witnesses. You, maybe you today are saying, what? What is it going to take? When will we see this type of fruit? Where is the power that we see in Acts and in the revivals of history? Church, the same Spirit of God that was promised to us, that was given to the disciples and is promised to us, the same power behind the Pentecostal revival we just read about is the power, and and the one that is behind all the great revivals of history, that is the power we must seek today by seeking the God who gives us His Holy Spirit. I said that really in a confusing way. I just want to say all that we need is what the disciples need, what they needed. They needed power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm calling us today to seek the God who gives the Holy Spirit for power. Church, if the Spirit of God is the power behind this this Pentecost story, And we got to seek the same spirit. We must again confess as a church, it's not by our strategies. It's not by our leaders. It's not by our giftings or anything else that we will have power for fruitful witness. But it's by our trust in the God who is still empowering his people for his mission by the spirit. In his writings on revival, the famous reformed London pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones argued that, quote, every revival is a kind of repetition of Pentecost. He said, it is the greatest need of the Christian church at this present hour. In other words, we need God to pour out his spirit on us afresh. That's what Lloyd-Jones is talking about. That is the greatest need for the church at every hour. We need God to pour out his spirit on us afresh. Now, before I say more on that, I just want to 
explain an important difference between what happened at Pentecost in Acts 2 and what we are asking for today. You need to know that we've already been given the Holy Spirit. We don't need another Pentecost like Acts 2 in the sense that we, we need him to, to, to keep giving his spirit to the church over and over. No, we, we have the spirit. If you're in Christ, the moment that you put your trust in him and you took your trust off of yourself, your own righteous works, and said, Jesus, I need you, in the same moment that your sins were forgiven, God gave you his spirit. So the spirit is ours right now. We don't need Pentecost in that sense. We have already been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit. And, and temples, not in part, but the whole of God. Hear me, we're not talking about, when I'm talking about asking for more of the Holy Spirit, for asking more, for more of his power, I'm not talking about uh, this in the sense that, that some of us are like a quarter full of the Holy Spirit and others are three quarters full of the Holy Spirit because they're a little better, they're a pastor or something like that. No, but I, the scriptures teach that each of us have been equally baptized with the same Spirit of God. We have. But I need you to listen to me carefully on this one. Even though each one of us have the Spirit of God, not all of us walk in the same power of the Spirit. I'm going to repeat that. Though all believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, we do not all walk in the Spirit's power equally. Many Christians live without knowledge of the Spirit's presence. We, we, we have an ignorance. We don't, we don't even think about the Holy Spirit. And, and, and that doesn't necessarily limit God, but it, but it has... I mean, nothing can limit God. Hear me. But, but when we have an ignorance and, and we don't even think about the Holy Spirit, there's an issue. And, 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 and many Christians live without dependence on the Spirit's power in their lives. We're ignorant and we're not dependent I heard one pastor helpfully to, uh, compare this to, to people who live off the grid. It's, it's not that they don't have access to the power. They do. They have access, but they choose not to tap into that power. So it's not that the Spirit never came to them or that He left them, but simply they, they are not ongoingly seeking God for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is complicated stuff. I'm going to try to be as clear as I can. I might stare at my, my uh, notes a little bit more than I usually do. I want, to, I want to read from pastor and president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, on this point. Quote, Throughout our lives, we are to be continually refilled with the Spirit. For mission and to walk with God. That's what Ephesians 5.18 tells us. Quote, be filled with the Spirit. Greer points out that be filled is a present imperative. Meaning literally, be being filled. Be being filled. Like ongoingly. Always. Continually. Again, I'm not talking about another Pentecost experience. Neither is Greer. That's not what he's saying here. I'm, I'm also not teaching a Pentecostal doctrine of the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want you to know, if you're a Pentecostal, that, that I love Pentecostals. I love Pentecostals because Pentecostals are passionate about depending on the Holy Spirit. 
And that is one of the reasons I believe that God moves through Pentecostals in the ways that he does. There's simply, I don't agree with all the doctrine of a Pentecostal, but I do love the fact that they depend on the Holy Spirit. They talk about our need for power more than a lot of Baptists. And so I'm not here teaching that we need a second baptism. I think that I believe that, that that can be dangerous. It can it can cause us to think about Christians as like some are varsity Christians and other are JV Christians. That's not what I'm talking about. No, but the scriptures do teach that if we are not seeking and depending on the Holy Spirit ongoingly for our mission and for our holiness, but slipping into a self-reliant kind of Christianity, then our mission and our holiness is going to fall short. We have to seek the Holy Spirit for our own holiness and for our mission. Today I'm focusing on the mission part. That God has given his spirit for mission and it is vital that we hold fast to Jesus for that mission. Greer goes on and and says this. He asked this really pointed question. He, He first says, if you are Christian, you have the spirit. The question now is, Does he have you? Isn't that a good question? Does the Holy Spirit have you? This is getting at the heart of what I'm talking about right now. It's not only ignorance. It's not only lack of dependence that hinders us. Yes, those are are things that hinder us from walking in power. But many of us are filled daily by things other than the Holy Spirit. Many of us are filled daily by things other than the Spirit. Are you today filled by wine? Are you filled by relationship, by some dream or something else? Is there something else that has your attention ongoingly, that that, that fills you? Or does the Spirit have you? Are you filled by Him consistently? By drawing from the well of the Word with others, by, by singing, by gospel preaching? Are you, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Or does something else fill you? We see in Acts of people who are being filled by the Holy Spirit. Ongoingly. I want to show you ongoingly. Turn to Acts 4, 29. Read a quick, another quick account that, that shows this point. We're told that a little while later, after, after the disciples had already been given the Spirit. This is after the disciples had already been given the Spirit. That following the release of Peter and John from the officials, they're being persecuted because they had been preaching the gospel and people were coming after them. We're told that a group of disciples, this is the end of verse 28, quote, lifted their voices together to God, saying, and now, Lord, look upon, this is verse 29. Sorry, I'm confusing you guys. Verse 29 And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This was a group sold out for Jesus' mission. This was a group who had already, they were already being persecuted for their faith. And look at them. They come back together in one accord and they're saying, more, Lord. More. They're saying, God, we want to preach your word boldly. They've already done it. They've already seen signs, wonders, and they're asking God to do it again. They're declaring their need for him. They're being 
filled again by the Spirit. And look at how God fills them. We're told the result in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Wow. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That sounds a lot like Pentecost, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like another Pentecost. They set their hearts and minds in the gospel. They appealed to God in dependent prayer. And they were met by an, by an outpouring of the Spirit for more powerful and bold witness. What I believe this text shows us, church, is that, that along with th- this text and many others, and I can point you to some of those uh, if you look on, our, on my manuscript that I'll post online, I believe this text shows us that, that spirit-filled believers should seek God for fresh fillings of his spirit. We should seek God for fresh fillings of his spirit to empower us for missions. Why? Because we are powerless without the spirit. We're powerless without the spirit. Secondly, we are easily forgetful of our dependence on him. Why do we have to keep going back and saying, God, we need your spirit. Without you, we're useless. Because we forget that that is the case. We need God to continue to show up and give us more of his spirit so that we keep saying, Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for empowering us for this ministry, for this witness. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is is really helpful here as well. He says, quote, we spend our lives in busy activism. Instead of pausing to realize the possibilities, instead of realizing our own failure and realizing that we are not attracting anyone to Christ, that they probably see nothing in us that makes them desiring to come to him. Lloyd-Jones is pointing out how often we are content with status quo. We're content with our strategies. We're content with not seeing people come to Christ. He continues, The inevitable and constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God. A thirst. A living thirst for a knowledge of the living God and a longing and a burning desire to see Him acting, manifesting Himself in His power, rising, and scattering his enemies. That's what it looks like, I believe, for us to ongoingly seek the Spirit and for the Holy Spirit to have a hold of us. It is, it is, to, have, it is to have a thirst for God, an ongoing love for him, a craving to see God's Spirit moving in power. Scott prayed earlier that we would want more than anything for his name to be hallowed in the earth. That thirst for God to to be worshipped and praised. It becomes our greatest longing. And we daily recognize our lack in ourselves and our need for God's spirit for power. Ongoing dependence on the spirit looks like prayers that, that, that say, Father, we need your spirit's power. Father, we want to know you more and we want to see you working through us, through our little church. We want to see you working to make yourself known. We want it more than our comfort. We want it more than our plans, more than anything else in this life. This this week, as I've been meditating on these truths, I, I was 
I was praying with some other pastors. We, we, we pray with a group of pastors in this city every other week, and, and the Lord really highlighted in my heart, in my life, that, that a lot of times when I pray these sorts of prayers, that, that there's, there's a little bit of insincerity in them. Because I'm legitimately afraid of the God who does just that. When we ask him for, for more of his spirit, he gives it. He does it. And when we say, Lord, use me, oftentimes it disrupts our lives. In great ways. You see that all over scripture. It disrupts our lives. And I, the Lord really convicted me this week when I'm praying, God, more of your spirit for me. More of your spirit for the church. More of your spirit for my family. He, he just said, Daniel, but do you really mean that? Do you really mean that? That you would be willing to give anything? That you're willing to have your comforts disrupted? Church, God is willing God has proven his willingness to us. And that he dumped his spirit on the church. On a church full of broken, messy people. On you and me. He's willing. When we're praying this way, when we're asking these sorts of things, we're asking God to make our hearts willing. We're asking God to move us to willingness. To seek him. We're simply accessing what he has already given by opening our hearts to, to what God wants to do through us. That's what we do. When God reigns, I said this earlier, when God reigns, we can become conduits of his power. It's not as much about his willingness, but about ours. So we must seek him. And those who do, the Bible shows, history shows, that God shows up with power. God moves in mighty ways. In ordinary churches like ours, in ordinary people like us. I want to say a final word about missions. Ross said I was going to preach on missions, and I, and I am. Verse, chapter 1, verse 8. Look, look there again with me. We're told that Jesus was going to give the Spirit to empower the disciples first to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. In that same sentence, he says, to the end of the earth. Let's consider for a moment how this connects to global missions. Jerusalem was the disciples' local mission field, right? That was, that was going to move out to Judea and Samaria and to, to that, that region. But, but the end of the earth, this is the global mission. But I want you to see that this mission, near and far, is the same. It's the same mission of God. Spirit-dependent Christians are not only going to care about the things that are happening in their city. They're not only going to care about their lost neighbors, but spirit-filled Christians, if we are a spirit-empowered, spirit-filled church, we're going to care about the fact that there are unreached peoples, peoples that live and die without the gospel. Our hope as a church, when we talk about being a, a, a beloved family of missionary servants... Our hope is that we together would be local missionaries who are passionate about sending and some of us going to do global mission. We want to be local missionaries who are passionate about sending and going ourselves to the nations. It's our hope as we pray today, as we ask God for more of His Holy Spirit that we would receive his, his power 
to be witnesses to our neighbors, but also that God would raise some of us up within this community to go and preach the gospel abroad. We have some in our community already who are preparing to go. And I'm so grateful for that. But we, we as pastors are praying for another 10 or 20 in the next decade who would be raised up from within this church to go and preach the gospel to the unreached people of the earth. And for those who are unfamiliar with that term, unreached, just really quick word. Unreached people groups are, are those who are statistically below 2% Christian as a whole, and therefore they do not have enough followers of Jesus or resources to evangelize their people. So without outside help, they're not going to get the job done, basically. They, they need help. Obviously, we pray for the Spirit to work, but we also go because, we, because they need help. Unengaged people groups is another category I'll just mention quickly. These are people that, where there's no known church planning effort amongst them. These are, these are people that li- literally live their entire lives not hearing the gospel. They live and die without hearing the name of Jesus. We want to be passionate about, about sending people to those contexts. Again, this is not a competing goal, but a complementary goal. That we would be both local missionaries and passionate about the global mission. God is going to accomplish his mission of bringing in people from every tribe, nation, tongue through people like me and you, through little churches like this one. Through churches who are dependent on God for his spirit. That's how God is going to bring about his his mission. And the question is, do you want to be a part of it today? Do you want to be a part of God's mission? God will build his church. He's going to do it. I want to be a part of it. I hope that this little church has a big part in it. Amen. The way to be a part of it is first to surrender your life to Jesus. Jesus is king. He's come. He's died. He's raised. He's proven himself. He's proven that he is Lord. And today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to to talk to someone in here or come and talk to me. If today, if if you're just like, I've got to surrender to Jesus. I want to be a part of this mission. Come. Today is the day. Amen. Secondly, it's to start praying diligently yourself and with others. Maybe that's your MC. Maybe that's your DNA. That God would give his spirit in a greater measure to us. That he would empower us for mission to our neighbors and to the world. When we do, I believe the Lord is going to cause many of us to more, be more radical, uh, to more radical hospitality. To our neighbors, we're going to be more bold witnesses to our coworkers and friends, and we're going to see healings and miracles. I believe that God is going to work in powerful ways. Let me remind you today, before we pray, that the good news of Jesus is not that you are enough for him in this mission, but that he has promised to always be with you. And by his spirit that he will always be enough for you and he will always strengthen you for the mission he's called you to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I want to praise you for these open hearts and open ears tonight. I want to praise you, God, that, that we have a church full of hungry people and I ask that you would make us more hungry, more thirsty for you to work and move. Would you allow... 
united prayer to erupt from our church, not because the pastors are calling on it and saying, please, please come, but because people are so zealous for the kingdom of God and because we believe that it is through prayer, through faith-filled prayer, through dependence on you and your Holy Spirit that you will move like you did in Acts and through history. God, would you help us and would you raise up some from among us even tonight? Give the call, Lord, that some would be prepared and ready to go overseas to preach the good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.